Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robots Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Jessica Bergnakas. I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. I'm the founding director of the Continuum Robotics Laboratory. Um, yeah, happy to be here today. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have um, any memories that trigger your interest for where, where you are today, if you remember? Yeah, actually several of those. Like um, when I was a kid, I was a very, very strong um, fan of Star Trek The Next Generation. So I think I watched every episode multiple times. Mm. And I remember that I was always very fascinated by the character Data, who is a, um, a synthetic life form, a self-aware humanoid android, having no emotions, but still being like hard to distinguish from a human. So. That was probably the very first robot that I encountered. I remember I was probably 11 years old. Mm. And the whole like show was just so exciting to me because it played obviously in the future and just seeing all the tech and all the possibilities that were imagined um, were just very inspirational to me. But I also had to be honest, like I never thought that I would be a roboticist. Like when mm. I was I was a child and also a teenager. I always thought I would go and become a surgeon at some point, mm-hmm. do something with medicine or math. And then that I ended up as a roboticist came later when I went to university, um, which I chose because I wanted to do computer assisted surgery. Um, as this was something I, which I found particularly interesting in helping surgeons do their job better. And then I discovered robotics and had a robotics as a major um, mm. at university and that kind of yeah, started my whole robotics journey. So it was kind of late. That's very interesting. So if I ask you what is the first robot you built and what is the feeling you had when you built the first robot? Well, the very first robot I encountered was probably as a student, as an undergrad or early grad student in a robotics lab where we just had to program robots. I, I majored in computer science, so we did like probably some pick and place tasks with some smaller robots and some race car controllers. But the very first robot that I really built was during my PhD. Mm. Um, I built a robot for um, laser bone cutting. So I used a common industrial robot. It was a Stipley RX90, which is a, a successor of the Puma 560. So I used one of those robots and then I put a laser on it to cut human bone um, at the skull. So that was part of my PhD thesis. And I was very proud of the system because in the end, it was really able to cut a predefined cutting trajectory on bone, um, not on human bone. So we used um, porcine uh, bone specimen. But yeah, that was my PhD. And that was the very first robot that I built. That's very interesting as well. So, if I ask you how you get the transition to soft robotics or continuum robotics, can you tell us how you shift or your focus in research? How this happened to you? Yeah, it actually happened almost at the during the end of my PhD because mm. as I was using this huge industrial robot manipulator, I was always questioning, even though the scientific questions that I answered were super interesting in the laser bone ablation, the motion planning and stuff, I was not really sure that such a big robot, which was meant for industrial automation, is useful in in a surgical setting. Mm. So I thought these robots are way too big, way too stiff, way too fast to be of good use in, a, in an operating room. So that made me think. And during my PhD, I was fortunate enough that I was able to attend some of the um, major robotics conferences like ICRA and IROS. Mm. And so I remember that in one of, I think it was an ICRA workshop in Kobe, Japan. And I 
sit in this workshop and I heard um, Bob Webster talk about his um, continuum robotics research. Um, and so I was so fascinated by seeing this tentacle-like, super small, millimeter um, thick uh, robot that was moving around, like to me, it almost looked like magic. Mm -hmm. And so that struck me. And so I went back, finished my PhD. And when I was looking for what to do after my PhD, um, Bob Webster had a search for a postdoc um, on the IEEE Robotics and Automation Society mailing list. And I saw that and I was like, wow, I really want to be a postdoc with him. This is what I want to do. I want to work on these small continuum robots because I felt this is the way to go. And this is so innovative that I would like to pursue it. And so I ended up being his very first postdoc. And in mm. 2010, I moved to Vanderbilt University and worked with him for almost two years, was still in contact, still collaborating on various instances. And so that really sparked my, my interest in continuum robotics. Mm -hmm. um, that's where it all started. So it shifted about 10 years ago. That's interesting. So if I ask you for sort of experience, and now you are, have this expertise, how do you define soft robotics from your experience? Well, I'm defining a robot like I would do in my introduction to robotics course at, at university, right? So a robot traditionally seen as a, well, I guess, reprogrammable, um, controlled, multi-purpose mechanism manipulator, um, usually following the paradigm of sense, plan, and act. Um, it's usually a combination of hardware and software. It's not merely hardware, it's not just software. So I guess it has to be some along those lines. This mm -hmm. is the definition I give to my students, but I'm also challenging them with multiple definitions because um, classically it would come from industrial automation where it would be a reprogrammable manipulator, right? That could do different tasks in, in automation. Um, whereas nowadays robots come with different embodiments, right? An autonomous car is ultimately also a robot that was probably traditionally not thought of as, as a robot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you what you think uh, the most important question that we have to consider as a community in soft robotics, there's, uh, maybe we are neglecting this question. Do you think we have, we have to focus on this question? Well, I think, so soft robotics as a field, and I'm thinking of a soft robot here as like, being a robot with in with absence of any rigid links and joints, so a continuum robot, soft robot using elastic materials uh, to form its body. So this in itself is quite a paradigm shift from, let's say, traditional robotics, right? Um, so this paradigm shift from, on the one hand, a rigid robot to a soft, deformable, elastic robot in itself is quite a huge shift. Um, in soft robotics, we often talk about embodied intelligence, morphological computation. Those are paradigms that we are exploring, which I think we are still in the beginning of, because moving away from our traditional view of a robot has to, by all means, avoid contact with the environment that is not wanted to getting to a point where we embrace the robot um, using its body and its environment to perform a task or to move around. I think this, this is the most underlying change of how we look at, mm -hmm. at robots. Yeah. yeah. So if I ask you for your research focus, because you're really trying to focus on the main question, I, I think you really pinpoint that's really what we have to focus on. So if you can tell us more about your research focus on soft robotics with your team. Yeah, my research focus is probably more on the less soft side of soft robotics. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working more in the area of continuum robotics. So we still use elastic materials like nickel titanium, for example, but it's still not perfectly soft, right? So working more on the hardest side of the soft robotics uh, community. Um, so it's continuous bending structures that we built um, at very small scale. I'm interested at those robots that have just a few millimeters in diameter, but are still long enough to do some meaningful tasks in those areas that are hard to reach, that are characterized by being tortuous, um, needing multiple turns of the robot to get to a destination and doing a meaningful task. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the overall overarching robot type that I'm interested in. And while I have initially been working a lot in surgical robotics on like building systems for surgical questions, starting in my PhD with this laser uh, bone cutting robot. And then during my postdoc, um, I focused on transnasal applications. So building a continuum robot system that could go through the nose, remove a brain tumor, um, or be inserted into the brain to um, suck out blood, for example. I kind of moved away from these specific surgical questions to focus more on the fundamental aspects of continuum robotics. Um, And so here I'm focusing on designing continuum robots, different design strategies, design optimization, um, developing design guidelines for continuum robots. We have also been working quite a bit on modeling, planning and control um, in like embracing the embodied intelligence of a continuum robot and trying to find good means to yeah, embrace mm-hmm. this, this inherent properties of the robot while performing tasks in unstructured environments. Mm-hmm. So we have been pretty much shifting from this, from this top down view from an application view to a bottom up view looking at these more in fundamental questions that we have in the field. Yeah. So if I ask you, what are the limitations you face now? Because you're really stressing an important point modeling and design recipient. I think that's really challenging in terms of robotics. But what limitation you have now for going to challenges? Well, limitations or challenges we are facing the most is probably in sensing. I think that's a, mm. a community. A problem that we're all facing that the softer and the smaller a robot gets the harder it is to sense its state and there will never be complete state information so we kind of have to live with incomplete information on the state that's definitely one um, big challenge we're facing in figuring out what sensing means can be useful and how can we mm-hmm. utilize this information so sensing is one thing um, another big challenge comes from the inherent softness and compliance. So being soft and compliant is great, but very challenging in terms of forces that you can apply. And so mm. I'm still investigating how can we build variable or adjustable stiffness for continuum robots to make them, you know, soft when we need it, but a little bit stiffer when we wish to to do a certain task. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting as well. But I would like to ask you, is this related to modeling? When you design a model, which level of scale you have to go for? Because I think you use also stressing and how important that you have algorithm can be scalable as well and later on. But when you design a model, do you think you have to go to the micro scale or continuum level? Do you think you have to merge them to get some insights how to design? If you can tell us what, how you, how you design the model for continuum robots. Yeah, the modeling is a very interesting area. Like we don't go to the very like micro level. Mm-hmm. So we are using continuum mechanics mostly because for um, the continuum robots that we have been building, those are usually good enough to approximate as a, as a beam structure. So we have been utilizing uh, the close rod theory of elastic rods quite a bit. However, in recent years, we have also seen that this might not be necessary to go into such a rich model, which does not only consider bending and torsion, but also elongation. And um, so that... Mm -hmm. Recently, we have seen that maybe with like more lumped parameter models, we can probably have an equally good approximation of the of the robots, you know, forward and um, differential kinematics um, at a better computational cost. However, knowing that we are neglecting a lot of physical phenomena like friction, like um, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. That, so yeah. just recently in a project we have just started last year and we have some preliminary work um, 
we have been looking at using learning-based methods to give us a better idea on how accurate could a model be if it was perfect, mm. meaning we gather a lot of data like shape information and actuator values, and then we feed a deep neural network with it and see, well, how accurate can the shape be predicted? And I'm not necessarily saying that a learning-based approach is what we're aiming for ultimately, but what I would like to see is how accurate could it be or how much more accurate can it be than like the most accurate model we have been developing so far, like the Kusrat theory of elastic rod-based model, um, which is a mechanics-based model, which is pretty accurate. Um, so yeah, that's something we are investigating is how can learning-based approaches inform us in what physical phenomena we might need to consider in a yeah in a model yeah i think that's also very interesting point you say and i have a question here do you think firstly um we have to understand the physics happen in soft material or soft robot to which level we have to understand the physics so that we don't neglect this uh, phenomena and the other question is do you think the trade-off, how do you think the trade-off between the model you develop and the data you have to fit to your neural network for like reinforced learning? How do you see the trade-off between the model and data? Since most of machine learning techniques, black box model, and maybe sometimes we can't trust, that we don't have enough data for, we need a lot of data from soft robotics to understand how they behave in a physical phenomenon. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seriously, we are probably never going to have enough data. So that's a big issue in robotics, right? There is mm -hmm. just not enough data. So learning-based approaches are probably a good approximator, but might not be perfect. Mm. Um, when I think about it, I think it's, it's important to find a good combination of the two because when you think about like even in classical robotics right you had a model but you would still need to calibrate it and there you collect data from a coordinate measurement machine for example to see is your robot really where you thought it would be um so i almost see it that we could have a similar relationship here in soft robotics where we have a model that is decent like mm -hmm. good enough um like maybe you know uh one to three percent in respect to length of the robot accurate and then once we deploy the robot as we have some sensing information available we could use this information and a learning-based approach to tweak the model to somewhat calibrate it and use a learning-based approach around it to probably get better performance in the real world mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah what I think about it. Yeah. So if I ask you about what do you think the most misconception you have witnessed in, in soft robotics since you start working, maybe something concerning you think, if you have any. I'm not sure if it's particularly true just for soft robotics, just in general robotics. I think there is mm. a huge misconception in the society about what robots can actually do. There's a lot of fear about robots stealing jobs, about robots replacing humankind, becoming evil. Mm. Um, I think this is a general misconception that we're facing that we are obliged to deal with. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think media is probably overselling what robots can do. But even as researchers, we might need to carefully look if we are also not overselling our mm. our results. I think that's also interesting point. Um, how you can regulate that if you, as a researcher, also overselling what you're doing? That is something you think. How we can regulate that? I'll make sure that we present what we have already, realistically speaking. Yeah, it's a matter of the audience, right? I guess mm. if researchers talk to each other, if we are on a research conference um, or in a workshop, I think all of us know. Mm. what the actual state is so but we are experts so that's easier for us to judge mm. the challenge really is when we face the general public exactly. how can we break down our pretty complex and also multidisciplinary view on the field of robotics such that 
you know, the general public can understand it and can approach it and can see, okay, even though there's all this hype around robotics, AI, machine learning, there doesn't need to be a lot of fear. I think it's a lot about education, educating about what we can actually do as roboticists and also showing that we care, that we care about the conception of, of our field. That's true. But that's, yeah. you know, also something scratching my head around it because I mean, this is not really something we learn, right? Mm. This is not really something we are educated in, in how to publicly convey information about what we're doing, how to break down complex research into digestible um, pieces. Yeah. What are the biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics in short term and long term? Roadblocks? Well, when I look at the soft robotics community, I think we are still very early on, right? Mm. I think it's still in an exploration phase. It's pretty hyped, which is good. But like there's so many fundamental open questions mm. starting in, you know, starting with design, with the embodiment of a soft robot, which touches on material science and even other fields, you know, it broadens the in itself interdisciplinary area of robotics even more. So we are probably enlarging our um, collaborations to fields that we have not traditionally collaborated with. Um, morphological computation, um, controlling a soft robot to remain soft, not to control it, that it is acting as a hard robot. Um, I think those are the roadblocks that we will have to tackle. I think we are still just scratching the surface mm. in that regard. Um, I'm sometimes surprised when I look back, like um, in the 80s, right, there has been like fundamental work by James Wilson at Duke University on like soft pneumatic actuators. And when you see the concepts are coming back over the past decade, um, now we are probably able to describe it better, understand it a little better. But still, like the concepts have been around quite a while. Mm. So I guess the field is still finding itself defining itself so i'm yeah i think the fundamental initial questions need to be need to be solved and then as like probably more long-term challenges finding convincing applications for soft robots mm -hmm. because yeah coming from the bottom developing all these cool soft robots that are inspired by i don't know you name it uh, tentacles octopus elephant trunk whatever but really, like, where are the killer applications? I think this will also be important for the field to mature, to, to show that this goes beyond a scientific exercise. Yeah, I think that's also interesting point you highlighted that as an application. Do you think that when you start, like, a research of robotics for four years, five, five years, do you think it has to be product-driven or just technology-driven? Because sometimes you develop a technology, but novel, but it doesn't have, maybe in the short term, we don't find any application for it. So I don't know what's your take about that. Which direction we have to focus or me direct your, your project towards pro product or just technology-driven? I think it's both. Mm. It needs both, which is important. Depends, if you say five-year project, I'm usually thinking, oh, that's a PhD student project. So that depends on the person. Mm. But like in general, I think it is important to approach it from both sides, from the more fundamental research and from the technological application standpoint. I think approaching it from both, both ends and kind of meeting in the middle is important to have the overarching, you know, general view on on the field in terms of what are applications what are technologies but then all these nifty little questions all these fundamental questions that need to be solved those yeah. are equally important mm -hmm. yeah so coming back to intelligence of robotics do you think which level now we have intelligence of robotics and from your ideas or how you would imagine the optimum intelligence of robotics What's that kind of robot that could be intelligent? Is it in material? I guess I can yeah. come back to my Star Trek example, right? Yeah. The character data. That to me was true intelligence. 
right? Like perceiving the, the situation, acting on it. At some point he was even able to, um, to show emotions, um, being able to learn, to understand and being able to be put in any situation, environment, being able to act in this environment in a meaningful way. That would be true intelligence mm-hmm. in robotics, including soft robotics. And so I would think we are very far away from, from that point. Um, of course, there has been enormous progress um, in yeah. like, computer vision, natural language processing, um, in robotics in terms of um, mapping, localization. There has been all this progress, but I think we are still collecting bits and pieces here. Like these overarching intelligence is just not there. Like we have seen robots that have some capabilities in a very small domain, but like general purpose intelligence is just not there. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's also interesting. If I ask you, since you're working in a micro scale and just a scales, when you design the sensing or emotion, how do you see that something can be integrated? If we speak about the small scales, how we can maybe take the approaches, right approaches to design sensing uh, or maybe manifesting emotion in that small scale? How this can be done? We approach it from different aspects. I mean, the the robot embodiment itself somewhat dictates the motion capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but those may be inspired by something we have seen in nature, for example. Um, I often take the elephant trunk. The elephant is one of my favorite animals as a good yeah. example of motion capabilities. Um, we, we often study like also using the model, the mechanics-based model, what kind of motions are feasible. But I guess we are still also there as an, at an infancy, like we are mm. using, um, you know, probabilistic methods, like sampling-based methods to kind of get an idea about what kind of motions are, mm-hmm. are possible for this robot and then try to find a good one using some heuristics, some metrics to to find a reasonable well motion yeah but there might also be a different way to look at it namely like you know coming from a morphological computation side and approaching it from from a more holistic view on the robot and its environment mm-hmm. yeah i would like to take your, your opinion about that nonlinearities can bring opportunities to robotics like buckling do you think that traditional control approach can destroy the natural dynamics and we have to find something uh, beyond the traditional control techniques? I don't know what absolutely. to Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, if we just employ traditional control approach, it, we would treat the robot as if it was a stiff, rigid link robot, right? Mm-hmm. And so we would kind of control the heck out of it that it behaves like a like a traditional robot, neglecting the softness, neglecting the deformation, right? If we always wanted it to to act that way, then I guess we kind of, yeah, put this whole idea about mm-hmm. a soft robot to an absurd way of treating it. So I think, yeah, we do need new control approaches. Um, not sure how that would look like. I mean, we have seen right model free approaches where we would just, you know, look at what kind of data can we acquire about the robot in its current state and use that to to control it without necessarily knowing anything about it. And mm. also here we might meet somewhere in the middle. Um, but it's just not there yet. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So coming back to the nature of soft robotics research interdisciplinary. How do you think we can overcome the challenges who speak a different language? There's a challenge here, really. But from your experience, how you can overcome that? You be on the same page and meeting the end goal for your role as a robot. I wouldn't say, I think it's actually a strength of the field. 
It's the strength in general robotics, and particularly in soft robotics, that we have so many diverse and you know views from different disciplines onto robotics, onto soft robotics. That's a strength. I think that's a great driving force for innovation, because the more diverse views and open approaches in a domain we have, I think the the higher the likelihood is of true innovation, either it be incremental or disruptive. So, and how to overcome it, I guess it's just through communication, right? Mm. Talking to each other, explaining each, other, each other's viewpoints. Um, that's key. That has always been key. It's just learning from each other, accepting and appreciating things that we do not understand, which are maybe out of our field, but in another field and trying to bridge those gaps, building bridges between disciplines and between different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. So I think this question also is relatable here. How, how can we enable a more inclusive culture around competitive ideas? So once we have we have to fund funding and grants, and there is a severe competition in academia in general that how we can enable more inclusive culture that you have different approaches, and that's in another term like intellectual inclusiveness as well. Yeah, how we can do that? I guess there are different approaches, right? I mean, one thing is in like from a more broader view from the funding agencies how. Um, calls are formulated, mm -hmm. um, right? So encouraging um, interdisciplinarity, encouraging bridging um, traditional uh, boundaries between disciplines may be one thing. So explicitly encouraging this kind of research, which I think is is happening at least in in the United States, in Canada, in in Europe. Um, so that's one thing from a funding perspective but also from the individual researchers perspective right i mean of course there is competition around funding and funding and hunting for funding is always a challenge and can be a no-brainer sometimes the best ideas might not be researched on because they never receive funding mm. but i think in terms of openness and expecting each other's ideas i think i would not say that this is not something we do right we have a scientific debate mm. on our ideas on our research um, at conferences um, in reviewing each other's works so this scientific debate is so important and so fundamental to science that I would think this is happening. Now, if you're asking in terms of more diverse or more open, I guess you're probably hitting more on like being more inclusive of other countries, other continents, um, not being too focused on eventually the um, Northern American European research exclusively. Is that what you're, what you're heading? Yeah, it, it could be both, by the way, just me. Uh, for the demographic regions, you're right, and also for intellectual um, approaches. So, yeah, there was a, I think there was something reported from ICRA that maybe the field is focusing in just certain approach and other approaches neglected, or maybe it's a gate like a gate gatekeeping the certain approach, and yeah, that's that's something we witness sometimes. But that's why I'm asking you how how we can be more inclusive for different ideas as well. But you are right. It, this is one of aspect and yeah. I guess each individual faculty member um, should really aim for diversity in in the group. Like mm. it's definitely something I'm aiming for is having a very diverse group, not only in terms of discipline and gender and you know all those mm. diversity metrics, but also in terms of viewpoints in terms of personalities in terms of where are we coming from what how did we grow up what kind of views do we have on the world and i think 
maybe due to this whole pandemic we're currently living through, we have seen in our conferences and workshops that we have attendees from, from countries all over the world that we would have probably not had if the conference was taking place in, I don't know, mm -hmm. some great city where you would have need to travel to. So I think to some extent, the pandemic also shows us ways to be more inclusive by having more open, more affordable ways to participate in scientific debates, scientific conferences and workshops. For instance, like all my undergraduate researchers, um, I encourage them to participate in ICRA this year or mm. also in RSS coming up uh, next week. So they, they really enjoyed this. They said they would have never had the opportunity to participate in a conference like ICRA and they were blown away. They loved what they were seeing. And I think if we can keep this momentum in the future to have it affordable and open to everyone by allowing maybe at some point a hybrid version of scientific debate, I think that will bring us forward quite a bit. And then of course, apart from that scientific debate and discussion happening at seminars, symposia and conferences, might be looking at the publication, the way we publish our research results, right? Mm. Um, there has been an enormous debate for the past couple of years about um, open, open access publishing um, versus, you know, the traditional publishers um, charging their users for seeing a research article which has been written by researchers, reviewed by researchers, all for free, um, but is then currently only available if you pay for it. So also there, I think there needs to be some changes for more openness and more mm. availability. But that's not something that a single person can change, that mm. the whole community as a whole needs to change it. Um, while at the same time, I am a person that is not a huge fan of archive because I feel like, you know, there's all these papers uploaded that did not necessarily get reviewed, but are taken for um, serious scientific results, even though they might be premature. So there is no quality assurance at all, but at the same time, it's accessible. So the non-academic has easy access to those papers whereas the more quality assured ones are probably behind closed gates at some of the bigger publishers. So that's a, mm -hmm. that's definitely a challenge. Uh, I think you said very important point in terms of hybrid conference and, and the opportunities. I think that's very important what you say. And also your take about publication as well, because I know you, you're really fighting about how we can review this amount of papers just coming up. Uh, uh, it's it's really challenging, and you are right. I think you said that it has to be collective uh, movement yeah. from the community, not not individually. So, so you are you know, right. it's also insane. Like if I look at my inbox, I get yeah. at least one review request almost every day. Mm. Like I just literally, I just cannot review that many papers. It's just impossible. I could just review papers these days, and this is me as a reviewer. But I'm also, you know, in editor com in editor roles, and then it's so hard to find people reviewing. Like the, the amount of publications just got insane. Yeah. And also the, the speed. I mean, can you really do some fundamental, really thoughtful research in three months, four months, six months? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. But that's the pace of, of, of the field. And I, I look at this with, with quite some concerns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Participating yeah. it myself, though, yeah. right? It's like... I think that's interesting because I, I'm, I'm just curious to ask you where do you think this come from because I think it's it's kind of loop as well because it's of course we know this culture of publication you have to publish or perish as well and that's something we all know and in other side you have to be employed to get a position if you had a decent amount of publication and now we maybe look for quantity I'm not making sweeping generalization but that's a trend and if I ask you where do you think this is something we have to maybe controlled, who is controlling this mechanism that you have to review this insane amount of publication and you have to publish as well. 
this is really insane as well for, as a faculty member and also for PhD students. I don't know where do you think who is the key corner for that? It's a systemic problem. Like mm -hmm. it's really not just this one instance. Um, I'm a member of the Junge Academy or Young Academy in Germany uh, before I was moving. And so we have been discussing this, like what is driving this insane number of publications? Mm. We really came back to game theory, right? It's like multiple things in this game of being an academic that kind of contribute to this, right? It's like, on the one hand, of course, publish or perish, it's our bread and butter, right? Mm. I am, as a researcher, judged on the research I produce. So I have to, of course, publish it. Exactly. Also, it's my obligation to make it publicly available what I achieved from public funding. Mm. The speed, though, is crazy. Of course, as a PhD student, you probably have been told, oh, you got to write like three papers before graduating, probably more. Um, and then, you know, on the faculty side, before you have tenure, you're also in this like process of, I want to get as much out, as much high quality work as I can. So you are naturally um, enforcing yeah. more publications in your group. And then it's also a little bit of peer pressure, you know, while everybody agrees that it's insane, everybody keeps measuring success by number of papers mm. you know how many papers do you have at ICRA and then it's like oh it's this pity view if you say one but you know I'm proud of this one paper this one paper has been a tremendous amount of work and yes we didn't send two more papers because they were just not ready yet yet yeah. you get this pity view so the community is also making it harder to kind of cut back on the number of publications yeah. And, you know, there's this annual review where I am compared across my um, colleagues and then I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, six journal papers in a year is really not that much. Others have, you know, so many more. Mm. So there's this constant tension in the field yeah. about these publications. I have seen some measures against it. Um, for example, funding agencies that are explicitly asking for a limited number of references that you give for your previous research like for example 10 or 5 or 2 per year um, mm. that makes sense so that is helping in terms of getting funding to kind of restrict yourself to what is the most important work that you have been doing in the past five years please list x number of papers that is helpful and i guess something like that would need to be also done on various levels on tenure review boards on um, search committees on phd committees maybe it's not submitting all the papers that the phd student has, has written maybe it's really just two or three like one per year should probably be enough right mm. yeah really, but it's easier yeah. for me to say now because i mean i've matured through the process i'm now tenured i have a more relaxed view on the system mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's you're right. It's not that easy. Yeah, I would like to thank you for the concrete point. I think you said very important point. I would like to thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so coming back to question, we are closing to the end. And we have few questions. How you with your team you can ensure that the evolves of robotics is beneficial to humanity or community. And I think that's what you said earlier that how to be in a contact with the community and lay people as well. So. How do you make sure this happens if you have probably four or five years? How do you make sure this happening to be beneficial to the community or community? Well, I guess it depends on how you understand your role. Like being a university researcher, I feel like I am entitled to do fundamental research, with, which doesn't necessarily need a real world application. Some mm. of it should, but not necessarily all which is fine for me because I'm at a university. I'm not in a company. I'm not in an R&D department where things are probably more prone to being actually deployed. So that's one thing. But like in terms of community education, um, I find it extremely important to speak about my field to various audiences. That's why I happily agreed, you know, to do this podcast or I do public lectures. Mm -hmm. um, I did some projects with children. I'm more than happy to engage with 
different communities about what I'm doing, trying to explain what it is, because I think that's also ultimately a strength in robotics and particularly soft robotics, because it can be so approachable for everyone, right? If we explain what our rationale is in building these robots, showing how it was inspired by an animal or some other biological phenomena that we have encountered. So I think there's so good ways to explain what we're doing to the public. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. So that's commonly probably referred to as outreach, right? I also feel that's important for me as a, as a, you know, advisor to also encourage the students working with me, my postdocs, undergraduate students to be able to communicate about what they're doing in def on different levels, on a very scientific level, but also on a more approachable general idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you have been talking also about uh, asking about impact and, and I guess engaging as well with um, with the local um, industry that you see, but also on a global level, interacting and having good contacts to industry and discussing what they are interested in and what you're doing, even though it may be far apart, right? It's not that I have multiple industrial partners for my research. But they are certainly interested and I keep inviting them to my lab or keep kept being invited to them. We're just exchanging our ideas and I'm talking about what we're doing. And it's just, well, I guess being somewhat resilient and hoping for yeah. it to eventually hit real yeah. world applications at some point. Great. So um, if I ask you what something you, sometimes you think I'm going to do that in like five years, do you think you have some kind of what I'm going to do in five years, what something, new ideas come to mind, just like when you sit and think what I wanted to do in five years, what I'm, I'm, my goal is to do in five years with my lab. Do you have any kind of thought you think of yourself? Yeah, I guess research-wise, I have multiple ideas. If you talk to my students, they would probably say I have more ideas that they could ever work on, but, um, well, I, if I envision myself in five years, it has more to do with the environment here, because mm. you're probably aware the University of Toronto just um, um, opened the Robotics Institute last year, where I'm um, an associate director, and I have also been appointed in computer science to build a robotics research cluster at U of T. So currently, I am more concerned with shaping the future of mm. uh, robotics at University of Toronto and also building a strong robotics curriculum in computer science because I think that's something we're lacking robotics is often um, often in engineering and I feel it's it's equally important to have um, also great education from com from the computer science perspective yeah. so that's something that I want to do in the next five years help growing this cluster into into a great and um, prosperous um, robotics center where yeah. students and researchers from all over the world would want to do their research on either soft robotics, continuum robots, humanoid robots, you name it, any kind of robotics. Wonderful. Yeah. But in terms of my research, I mean, I'm still inclined by the vision of, you know, having a continuum robot that is thin enough to be used at places hard to reach, um, for example, in um, inspection tasks or in medical applications that can, you know, move its way towards the target, towards the site, um, teleoperated by a human with some level of autonomy supported um, and really make a difference for treating a patient with cancer or um, doing a non-destructive inspection task that would have otherwise taken forever or eventually would have required the uh, for instance, a jet engine to be taken apart. So having this long mm. continuum robot, which is compliant, yet can be stiff to perform a task hand in hand with a human or side by side with a human. That is still the vision that I'm working towards too. And hopefully on the way, making some cool fundamental contributions, serving the community with like putting some of our design work open source. It's mm. something I'm uh, currently debating with a lot of my students so we are trying to give back to the community mm. more than we have been doing in the past that's interesting yeah so we have three questions left do you think ego is important for the researcher 
I guess to some extent, yes, of course. Because um, it's a very competitive mm. environment in research, right? You have to believe in what you're doing. Mm. You have to have some resilience and grit to do it. So yes, I think ego is important because research needs strong personalities yeah. to also go beyond where everybody has been going before, right? To believe in, I can make a change and believing in crazy ideas and these weird ideas that probably, you know, the majority of your field says, well, that's crap, that's not gonna work, but mm. you believe in it and you follow it. And I mean, we have seen those things, right? I mean, the early research on neural networks, for example, people have been looking at it and being like, this is not gonna be useful. And look now, everybody uses uh, neural networks now. Mm-hmm. Like having the grit to to stick with what you believe in, I think it needs ego for sure, but in a good way. I can't agree more with that. Yeah. And if I ask you, what do you think the most important quality you have gained in your academic career and something you have to maintain in your journey as an academician? I guess excitement. Mm. I have always been so excited for what I'm doing. I'm waking up in the morning and I'm just so excited for what the day holds because I can work on something that I love Mm. very much, right? I can work with amazingly bright students and colleagues and this excitement and this genuine interest and motivation and positivity, I guess that's Mm. that's key for me at least. But I've always been an extremely positive person, which helped me a lot too. I, I can feel it, Shotsuhen, yeah. And uh, if I ask you what was maybe the best advice was given to you personally or professionally, and was a life changing for you? The best advice probably was my dad. When I was still a teenager, he mm. kept saying, there's nothing you cannot do. If you want to do something, just do it, which is cheesy. Mm. but so true yeah that's so that's from from my from my dad's side and then well i have had so many great mentors so i couldn't pinpoint one of them but i had just great mentors and people that believed in me and in my capabilities and were showing me paths that i might have seen but was probably hesitant or mm. unsure if i can take them like, you know, this this one question, like, oh, have you considered doing a PhD? That was probably changing my life quite a bit. I would have not considered myself being worthy, but this person asking me, did you consider doing a PhD? We would really like to have you here. Was probably also one of those moments that pretty much changed how my life unfolded. That's very powerful. And I, I really enjoyed this discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, so much. for having me as a guest.